0: So bored You need to walk the other way I'll I tell think- you And welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. Thank you for joining us today. Our guest is Ariel Clark. She is an attorney at law in California with Clark Howell, and they are lawyers for the Green Frontier. Welcome, Ariel. Thank you so much for having me, Kira. So, for over a decade, Ariel has been in the trenches of cannabis law and policy. Her clients are farmers, cutting edge manufacturers, multi state operators and highly successful investors and innovators. When the idea of cannabis law, business law, was considered an oxymoron, she committed her practice exclusively to this emerging industry. Foresight that was recognized by Rolling Stone, which named her one of 18 women shaping the culture of tomorrow. Ariel's hard work, intelligence, and tenacity have earned her a national reputation as one of the industry's fiercest lawyers. Ariel has received many distinctions. Among others, she's been recognized as one of the top 75 most important women in cannabis by Cannabis Business Executive, as one of the 30 most powerful cannabis lawyers by MG Magazine, and was included in Entrepreneur's Top 100 Cannabis Leaders. She is the co-founder of Cannaboss Women's Circle, an active community of professionals collectively advancing feminine leadership in the industry. Ariel has also founded the Los Angeles Cannabis Task Force and was instrumental in the passage of Measure M, authorizing the creation of a legal regulated industry in L.A. Ariel is also an active member of many associations, including the California Native American Cannabis Association. Wow, (laughs) your experience in this industry is so Very, very impressive. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today. And thank you for everything that you have done to advance the cannabis industry, Ariel.
1: Well, Kara, I appreciate that so much. And I'm honored to be here with you. You do so much within this community. You provide such amazing leadership. So really, it is my honor to be here.
0: Thank you. Well, this interview is about you, so I want to know, what is your cannabis origin story? How is it that so long ago, before cannabis was recreational uh, legal for adult use, how is it that you got into cannabis law?
1: Well, I have always been a part of this community industry ecosystem. Uh, Both my mother and my father um, in Michigan, which is where I'm from, were involved in the cannabis trade, and I'll leave it at that. Um, When I I went to law school at Berkeley Law, um, and I graduated in 2005, and I had a lot of friends within my community who were very involved in the emerging cannabis business community ecosystem in the Bay Area. A lot of people who were growing some of the first dispensaries out of the Bay Area, um friends who reached out to me and said how do i how do i do this legally what is prop 215 what can i do can i sign a contract is a sale legal so really i was brought in by members of you know my community and 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 friends um and i was really attracted to the plant herself um people who were really medicine people helping to bring medicine to folks who needed it, as well as the entrepreneurial sort of uh, spirit and those sort of on the cutting edge uh, who maybe were a little more willing to take certain risks because of something that is meaningful and healing. So that's really how I was pulled into, and not even just pulled, came, came willingly and have always been a part of this medicine, really.
0: So I'd like to talk a little bit about your work with Native Americans. You are um, a part of the California Native American Cannabis Association, and it's one of the parts of your work, among all of the amazing things that you're doing, that I have found is really compelling because there, it's, it's a very different environment working with legalizing cannabis on a reservation. And there are some unique challenges there. Can you talk a little bit about What drew you into working with Native Americans in cannabis, and what some of the challenges that are present are today? Sure. I
1: am biracial. My mother is uh, white. Uh, My father is full-blood Ottawa from the Grand Traverse Band of the Ottawa and Chippewa Indians in Michigan. Um, I have a background in Indian law. That's actually why I went to law school in the first place, Um, and have a long history working on social justice issues related to native people. Um, Being involved in cannabis in California, a lot of my work has been with entrepreneurs, operators, legacy operators in California who are newly getting into the regulated market or people who need to transition from the legacy market to the regulated market. Then we have, about 116 or so tribes in California, federally recognized tribes in California. The challenge for tribes and any cannabis project on tribal land has been that there is still currently no ability for, let's say, a grower located on tribal land to sell into the wider regulated Cannabis supply chain in California. That is a huge problem. That continues to be a huge problem. The only way to do that is a mechanism within the state regulations whereby the tribe would essentially have to waive their sovereignty with respect to um, that project and really with their civil regulatory authority and essentially allow. California enforcement regulators to come onto tribal land to oversee and have have jurisdiction and authority on with those projects. That may not sound like a big deal to some, but it I is a huge deal with the devil. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, you know, California is one of these public law two hundred and eighty states, um, which means that uh, the the with tribes already the criminal. Um, jurisdiction is with the state, so the state already has criminal jurisdiction on tribal land, and and tribes still, however, retain uh, civil regulatory jurisdiction. Thus, one of the kind of mechanisms, or you know, main mechanism that tribes have, casinos on their land. Um, so it's it's very important to preserve sovereignty. That is an identity. It is a nation state. It is, you know, we, we are constantly on sort of the defensive around those types of issues. So that was a huge non-starter for tribal leaders uh, in California. Now, what we've seen is that tribes have started and, and have been starting their own dispensaries, growing cannabis, and there is an intertribal cannabis supply chain that has cropped up. Um, But, you know, from my mind, it's a major issue that tribes in California, this is their land, (laughs) that they are not able to actually participate in the regulated supply chain in California is outrageous. And other states figured out a way to solve this fix through compacts and other sorts of mechanisms. But we just haven't been able to get there in California, unfortunately.
0: Why? Um...
1: You know, (laughs) it's a good question. Um, Probably some of it is just, well, maybe a good deal of it is the continued racism and oversight of Indigenous people in this state. Um, It is also a complicated issue in that certain of the larger gaming tribes are somewhat concerned about how cannabis may impact their operations. Um, tribes are not all unified. Uh, each tribe is distinct and has its own kind of views of their own governance and 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 kind of how they think things should go down in in a variety of ways. Um, and they're really, you know, it, it's what I've seen <laughs> since this global pandemic that we are still living through is that government can act when it wants to. Um, so I'm, you know, I think at, before this situation, I would have said, well, it's really hard to pass a law and, you know, kind of the, the regulatory fix is complicated. No. If a government wants something to be done, it will get done. If there's enough will and effort to get it done, it will get done. It's just a matter of that not being a high priority. And I will say there were Folks in the cannabis industry, non-native people, who opposed the bill one of the times that we were trying to run it that would have created a fix for tribes. And that was very heartbreaking. That is um, That was really too bad.
0: So it sounds like what you're telling me is that there there are actually two industries that exist in California. The yeah. Industry and then the reservation Native American industry that shares uh, product among themselves. Is that correct? Or are they each building their own micro industries in on their land?
1: Yeah, they're doing that and also um,
0: kind of working out intertribal commerce. Why do you think that more of the industry, like unless I talk to you about this, I have no idea any of this is going on at all. Why do you think the cannabis industry in California is basically, this isn't a topic of conversation. It's with all of the other things that we care about in this industry, getting people out of jail, making medicine accessible. Why are we not paying more attention to what's happening to Native Americans in our state?
1: You know, it's always that's always a, a thing that I wonder, you know, why is it that we are so, 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 so marginalized in a lot of discussions? I mean, sometimes I wonder if it's, you know, it, I, likely a combination of things, um, you know, there's not an immense population of native people generally, you know, I, I think about the fact that my own life, uh, as, you know, a, a mixed person being half native American is a miracle. Um, so, you know, I think partly it's just numbers and, you know, um, kind of everything that goes, goes along with that. I, I think it's also partly, um, probably guilt and kind of unknowing what what it is, what to do with with the fact that this land was colonized and kind of probably just along the lines of what we are experiencing right now, which is we need to have really slow down and have a, a loving but true reckoning with our past and our present and our deep, deep pain and violence that has occurred in this country and really all over the world between humans.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: a lot of that stemming from racism and hierarchies and fear and, you know, just this what does not have to be a condition of of our humanity. and the only way that can happen is by recognition, listening and healing. And you know, it's uh, I hope, I hope and pray every day, very much that we are in a place where it is so, it is, it is so uncomfortable that we will change.
0: Mm. Well, now is the time for it. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Since we are called Women Leading in Cannabis, I do want to talk to you about being a woman in the industry. Um, Can you talk to me about some of the challenges that you faced as a woman in cannabis? Sure. Um, I will say that
1: it's because I'm a woman that I started my own law practice just a couple years out of law school. Um, And because I went to work for some men (laughs) who, um, you know, had a similar response as I have experienced many times throughout, especially my younger life, um, of inappropriate remarks. In fact, the remarks in that situations, it all came to a head when the remark that I received was, Oh, it looks like you're wearing F me heels. We went to a, court hearing in Los Angeles court on some cannabis related civil matters. Yeah. And I just, that was about enough of that. (laughs) And, um, so I took the great leap into starting my own practice, um, with the kind mentorship though, also of people within this space, um, and men and women who are very supportive of that. But, you know, it was that, Sexual harassment, sexism, absolute inappropriate obnoxiousness that just kind of made me recognize you know, I've always created the life that I want to see for myself and have always been very fearless in that regard. And so, why do it any differently here? I mean, you know, the way that I grew up and how I grew up, it was we were. We really had very little money and I didn't know a single lawyer growing up. Um, and I just had a vision of wanting to be able to navigate the matrix of law, to help people, to change things. And, you know, I have a, had every job since I was five years old. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so why not try to figure this new thing out? Start start my own practice. So, you know, the inception point you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's like the the difficulty and challenge is the, is the stuff of transformation. It's the transmutation. It's the grist for the mill, you know. And um, so, you know, being a woman in cannabis from that moment to having my own law practice and having primarily male and white male clients for a long time or, you know, for, for a good while, and then finally starting to have you know, more diversity of, of people um, over the years was, was a great, uh, it was, I appreciated that very much. Now, um, you know, our clients and the work we do is, um, you know, the, you know, the clients find their attorneys. And so I'm very grateful that we have an immensely diverse client base and that, you know some of the things you mentioned that I work on uh, to promote uh, diversity and equity and inclusion in the space. And most recently, I'm very actively involved on in the Diversity, Inclusion and Social Equity Committee of the California Cannabis Industry Association. I'm very actively right now working uh, as I'm on a vice chair of the Los Angeles County Bar Association, and we've just set up. Uh, social equity committee, and I'm very actively engaged in working on a pro bono legal committee, actually two types for social equity applicants. And, you know, so the work that I am able to do in the space now is so different than what it was 15, 10 years ago. I guess 10 years ago is when I opened my own, threw up my own shingle. So, um, you know, it has only ever been an opportunity for growth. And my law partner is a woman and we have mostly women in our firm. And, um, you know, I, I just look at it as a source of strength, really.
0: So you are in an environment where you've worked with a lot of white men in the industry and we are We're kind of in this state right now where we have these unicorns that have received a ton of money. They're led by white men. They have massive amounts of exposure. And so their failure is failing spectacularly. And it's really kind of putting the spotlight on the fact that a lot of the money that was pushed into cannabis in the earlier days went to the wrong people. And a lot of it. and we we were very hopeful that these companies who have a national presence, an international presence, would le- be would go a long way in legitimizing the cannabis industry. You see, we are, we can act like a traditional business. We can be profitable. We can be appealing. You will want us in your neighborhood. And the end result that we're at today is these CEOs are being removed. Their stocks are worth pennies. What do you say to the women that you work with who are watching this happen and also not getting funding, um, not getting the support that they need to run their business, having these businesses shut down their accounts payable uh, because those, those businesses that they do business with can't pay their bills? How do you, what is your message to the women in the industry? How do you keep them motivated and guide them in really building a strong and successful business that operates with integrity, with such a massive amount of pressure working against them? Yeah,
1: that's a really great question. Um, A lot of it, I would say first is stay connected with our network. Um, You know, we have, there are brilliant, successful women who are doing amazing things. So work with each other through supply chain partnerships, professionally through networking. I mean, it really is stepping very much forward into community with each other because on some level it is a, I mean... Davina and Goliath scenario (laughs) (laughs) um so you know that that's that's immensely helpful and again I just want to thank you Kira for everything you do in in that in that regard deeply deeply thank you um and so um yeah and and what else to say I mean I kind of chuckled when you described the um sort of meteoric embarrassing <laughs> uh, uh, situation we have with a number of these client th- these uh um companies um i i guess i laugh because that's sort of what we're seeing outside of cannabis as well of course i mean yeah. that And what I hope will be the old paradigm that will just die off. Um, But that also means that, you know, as we move into something that looks different, we really have to keep working very hard. And, you know, really, that's where these kind of networking and connections and, okay, who are the, you know, impact investors? Where can we get? funding for you know women owned and 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 minority or people of color owned businesses how do we connect with capital we need to obviously have a change in um, you know the scheduling of cannabis or some fix that will would allow smaller businesses to take out loans. I mean the thing is this <laughs> I look at it kind of similar to the way I look at the challenges in the city of LA with the regulatory cannabis program here. There are tons of challenges and and it's a mess. I mean, I'm sorry to say that, but it's sort of like, can we expect that something, something that is created out of something that is sick will look much different? It takes a lot of efforting. And I will say again, healing because the, the 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 world paradigm is one that is sexist and white male dominated and it's increasingly becoming so that the wealthy and that very top tier are gaining more and more wealth and there's much larger, you know, very poor and v- smaller kind of you know dire economic circumstances happening. So do we really expect that things will look so different? in this space it's relationships that often give you opportunities for wealth do your did your parents go to private schools do you have those kinds of connections it stays within that kind of class system same thing with businesses so i mean this is where like as women-owned businesses for example put your money where your mouth is and work with other women in the industry hire other women in the industry take a minute to do your clients need a CPA or accountant find a women woman owned business or women owned businesses to make those types of referrals. I mean, it is those small actions that we take that uh, you know that that we actually have control over that will hopefully you know kind of continue to and to grow our segment and ownership within this industry in generally.
0: I, I'm so curious about how we're going to achieve that when what has been held up and glorified has been, it's like, if we look at what these guys did wrong, they spent money like water flying around on private jets, massive parties, huge marketing campaigns. And then, you know, with all of these lawsuits and things coming out, we're also learning that the work environments were incredibly hostile and racist and sexist. And yet, you know, so we're kind of um, mirroring it to the industry that that is that's par for the course, that that's how those people choose to spend, spend their money. That's where the investment goes is people who spend money like that. And so when you have a woman who doesn't have friends and family that she can go to who are wealthy and is trying to just put the pennies together and, and make the right financial decisions to grow her business. And that's the model that we see of how you have a successful cannabis business. How did, how do you, I mean, community can only fill so much of that void. Healing can only fill so much of that void. There's a, There's a cultural shift that needs to happen around the cannabis industry that just doesn't reward that kind of business model, because it not only does it set us back kind of on a morally in a in in a kind of excitement about the industry and and a willingness to keep fighting hard when those are the ones that are winning, but it's giving the world a perspective. I mean, there I remember being in LA and driving around seeing those horrific. billboards of women's butts in thongs Yeah, and thinking to myself, okay, as somebody in this industry, that's so offensive to me. But if I was someone who was not in cannabis, who maybe was a little resentful of the fact that a dispensary just opened in my neighborhood and now you're putting this up for my kids that I'm driving home from school to see, and I have no choice. And I now feel assaulted by the industry. Yeah. This how do we change this from the cultural perspective in cannabis so that we we shift to rewarding and and, uh, uh, acknowledging women who do right by their business and they do right by the people in their business and they do right by the industry as a whole. How do we shift that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just want to say again, that is these are shifts that need to happen globally that in any, in every industry in our communities, because, you know, sexist, racist belief systems and, you know, ideas or, or the, the kind of okayness that the most wealthy can just sort of do whatever they want to do. All of that has to shift. I mean, one of the books that I'm reading right now is called "Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire." I'm, you know, looking at okay, you know, the world is on fire, and mm-hmm. and 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 how and and if I believe in. Or if I have any hope, I don't even know if I believe in capitalism and conscious capitalism and kind of think about like the intersection of for good and for profit, what it can't look like what it's what it's right now, what's happening is garbage. It is not going well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It has to shift. There are people on, you know, out in the streets protesting we, there are so many people suffering, so many people that are homeless, so many people who feel completely isolated. And, you know, we are in a very fractured, very, very fractured time and where things are very upside down. So I just, I I will just say that it is not, (laughs) this is, this is, this needs to happen all around in terms of in cannabis and how can we help women who are or what can women business owners, entrepreneurs do? You know, I, I, I don't, I, I, I do not know the answer. I can offer that, you know, kind of again, it's sort of what are these different layers? It's how do you know? How are the businesses funded? How can we get more funding to women who are are running conscious companies? Who are they working with in terms of their partnerships and in their network? Who are they employing? Who are buying their products? You know, it's sort of like, and then there is, you know, the, um, you know, you vote with your dollars. So an awareness among consumers uh, as well. And, you know, hopefully as you know, people are going through a licensing process, one would hope that these things would matter. But I can tell you over and over again on a local level, It really is the case that those with the most money and connections that do tend to be wealthy, connected, white, probably male are, you know, much more able to navigate through that licensing system. I mean, things are not fair. It is not a healthy system that we live in. It's not just cannabis. It's it is the moment.
0: (laughs) to break the wheel. Mm -hmm.
1: It is, but that's okay. I mean, the other thing is it's a recognition, you know, recognizing that, seeing things truthfully, how they are looking, looking squarely at an issue, that is the starting point, you know? So it's not hopeless. I just, I don't know all of the answers at Mm -hmm. all. It's like, Okay, well, this is what it is. Let's call it like it is. It's not fair, it's screwed up. okay, what are these certain things we can do? And I think about that Kira, every day of my life because you know, I want <laughs> I would like things to look very differently. And really, what that ultimately looks like is a, a world that is has peace within each of us and 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 between each of us. I mean, Period. That is what I I wish we could have, right? But what and and I it pains me that there is so much pain and suffering and violence and just horrendousness toward each other and ourselves and lostness in the world. But it is. That is where we are at. That is where I am at. So I think every day, okay, what can I do? What do I have control over? And 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 I chip away at the pieces. You know, and I am, I suppose, a warrior in that regard.
0: Mm. Okay, so let's talk about something hopefully a little more positive along those lines. So in California, we are an essential service. And yet here we are still burdened with this massive, massive tax rates, 280E, and restrictions, even though we are legal here in California for adult use, we only have, what, less than 20% of the counties are allowing cannabis businesses. So we're kind of in this this interesting situation where our tax dollars are actually supplementing a lot of the loss California is going through in tax revenue from things like hotels and tourism, things that have been shut down because of COVID. Yet... We're discriminated against, yet we have a massive tax burden on us. Uh, Massive looting has taken place. Right before COVID, we were in a situation where a lot of bills were not being paid. The money was drying up. And now we're, we're on the front lines, essential workers. What is this doing? And from a legal perspective, I'm very curious to hear about what your perspective is and what you've been working on to use this time as a leverage for our industry, to break the wheel that exists and and make things more positive for the cannabis industry to in in exchange for providing this service and these tax dollars to the state. At the beginning of the pandemic,
1: um, when, you know, there were, were both, in California and in other states, but I'll just speak to California. And we've got different, we have offices, our firm has offices across California and I'm, I'm in LA. Um, There was a moment in time, and this happens in kind of big political change moments where, or cultural moments where it was, we were at a crossroads. Would cannabis be deemed an essential service? And it was very amazing and wonderful to see a lot of our colleagues, lawyers, business owners, but especially a lot of kind of, a lot of us who have been involved in activism, um, whether it be on, you know, regulating cannabis, drug policy reform, but, you know, kind of activists step toward and into Getting cannabis deemed essential. Um, And, you know, there were some challenges with that, but everyone really pulled together. I was very involved in that effort in the city of LA and some other jurisdictions down here in California, as well as reaching out uh, to folks we know in the governor's office. I mean, that was a very pivotal moment. And I am thank God everyone came together. And, you know, also, that is true. Cannabis is essential. It is a, you know, we 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 use cannabis as, quote unquote, recreationally, some of us, but it is also medicinal. So um, it, it it that is that was a coming together moment that has sort of spurred on an effort amongst advocates such as myself to push more local jurisdictions to. Open up opportunities for businesses so we can see more uh, licenses in California. It is outrageous. Maybe that statistic is correct. Somewhere between 70 or 80 percent of local jurisdictions have a ban. So there's basically prohibition in that, um, you know, 70 to 80 percent of the state. So, so we need more local jurisdictions to create licensing opportunities. I never thought we'd be this far into the regulated market, and we would have so few. I mean, I would have you 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 couldn't have told me that would have been the case four or five years ago. But we are here. But with cannabis being deemed as essential, that change is starting to percolate on a local level. And we know from even statements, Lori Ajax, the the chief of the Bureau of Cannabis Control here in California who has said that she has gotten, and her office has gotten more outreach from local jurisdictions that currently have a ban on how to regulate. and for, again, for advocates and business owners and, you know, folks in the industry, this being deemed essential is really it, it is it's sort of one now another tool in our tool, tool belt. When we do talk about issues like we need reform with 280E, we need access to banking, you know, and also we need to not be so heavily burdened uh, with at minimum all of the regulatory um Heavy, heavy lifts that these businesses suffer under. I mean, it's 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 insane and it's massive. You know, one of the main reasons why there are so few businesses that are licensed in California, I would also argue, is um, or. <laughs> Yes, it's the local jurisdictions are the gatekeepers for sure to get a state license. But also, it's immensely expensive to go through that process locally. So, you know, local jurisdictions that are currently issuing licenses can't just issue three. They need to issue more than that. And it can't take two years. And the licensing fees can't be so high. I I guess I include that because, you know, it's going to be hard to make the argument that, Uh, uh, you know, we should be, or businesses should be taxed less, because part of the, you know, with with COVID um, and, you know, uh, the kind of current economy across the state, one of the motivators of getting cannabis businesses licensed is the tax revenue. So there has to be some sort of like middle ground. I mean, some local jurisdictions have actually recently lowered the taxes for cannabis. Yes, we would like that on a state level. You know, political folks, lobbyists in California have said, there's just not an appetite for that at this time. Getting places open, getting jobs, getting more tax revenue. So then I, that's kind of where I go back to, well, let's lessen the regulatory
0: burden. And do you think that lessening the regulatory burden is, I mean, is it there because it's safeguarding against bad things happening or is it there because it it it's a moneymaker? Like, will the change in regulations make the industry itself more dangerous or is it simply just keeping us out and using money as the funnel?
1: Let me tell you what I actually think is going to happen. What I think is going to happen is that the state agencies, you know, there's a plan under... Uh, Newsom, I think it's going to be in the budget trailer process, I believe, that will wrap up the three licensing agencies in California, which will hopefully help with um, efficiencies. I just think it is going to probably, and again, you know, government can act faster when it wants to, and it's also enormous and a bureaucracy. So I think it's going to take some more years a handful probably of years for things to actually become more efficient quick fixes that the state could do is lower renewal fees um you know kind of look carefully at the you know application and licensing fees but then again they need money to cover their costs it's complicated you know it's 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 complicated the industry needs a break and yet you know it would be interesting to look more closely at the state's budget and how this money is being spent you know one of the things is the bcc there's a line item for more enforcement and that's something you know and and cops being taken off their police beats and and now they're you know going to be part of the enforcement within the bcc so um you know, myself and other members of the diversity inclusion and social equity committee of CCIA have been kind of taking a look at that. Well, 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 what does that mean? Enforcement. And mm. we're putting together our comments to the state on what we think we're defi- We're helping to define in what enforcement should look at. What is enforcement enforcement enforcing against who um, and in what circumstances so it can be better refined
0: thank you for that insight uh it's you know it's one thing when you think about from a, an outside perspective seeing all of these things happening and saying well you know this is the opportunity for more states or more jurisdictions to invite licenses because now they're seeing oh this is a way that we can actually have revenue and it it also feels like california needs to be giving us a break because of the amount of tax revenue that without us they would not have But when you really get into the intricacies of how the law works, it it becomes such a different picture. So thank you so much for sitting on the front lines of that and using your talents and your resources and your energy to fight for our industry. I, I know that I thank you on behalf of a lot of people. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for the work that you do. And thank you ladies. For joining us today. Uh, we've had an amazing conversation with Ariel. We have learned a lot about what is happening in the Native American community. Um, Ariel, if people want to find out more, where can they go to learn more about what's happening and potentially support your efforts? People can just contact me directly
1: um, and email me. My email address is aclark@clarkhowell.com. at dot com, And we're online at clarkhowell.com. I'd love to hear from some of your ladies.
0: And ladies, that is an incredible offer to be able to connect with Arielle. So if you have any inclination, please do so. She is a wealth of knowledge and just an incredible human being. We're very, very lucky to have a woman like her in our industry. All right, ladies, well, that is it for us today. Join us again on our next episode. I look forward to speaking with more women leading in cannabis. And if you are a woman leading in cannabis and you'd like to sit down and have a conversation with me, please reach out to hello at womenempoweredincannabis.com. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's Top 100 Influencers in Cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.